We, we value the word here. It's the word of God. The word of God is the word that works. We say that often. Um, and so we want you not just coming and listening to me. While that sure makes me feel good, uh, I know that that's not the power that brings transformation in a person's life. It's God's word. And so, so we, we value that. I encourage you to be reading and looking and seeing where all of this comes from. So Hebrews chapter 4, we're, we're in the middle of things. This is a, there's been a lot of context that has gone before. Jesus is the greatest of all God's revelation, of all of God's revelation in, in this world, and, and revelation of his work. This is the greatest revelation of God's work in this world. This has been the driving theme. It's the title of the series, that Jesus is greater. Uh, his greatness is at the root of every warning. It's at the, every, at the root of every conditional statement. It's at the root of every exhortation to, to act a certain way. Jesus's greatness is the driving doctrinal position of this letter, of this book of the Bible. It is uh, the very central theme, and, and out of that, every other theme is developed. We've seen him greater as a greater messenger than the, than the angels. We've seen him as a greater apostle than Moses. We've seen him as, as greater in every way, providing a greater rest than Joshua. Jesus is God's son who's come, put on flesh, dwelt among us, and is now enthroned in victory over sin and death. The songs we just sang couldn't be sung if Jesus had not died and risen and now sitting on his throne over all things. This is why we gather. It's why we come together to celebrate and worship him. He, 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 we, we see in this letter that he, was, he suffered and he was tempted, tested, if you will, in every way. And because he was, he helps us now as we are tempted and tested. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And to this point, to, to, to this point today, we've been really focusing on, even the writer of Hebrews has been focusing on that apostleship, Jesus being a sent one, that's what an apostle is, not in the sense of the New Testament apostles that were called and sent of Jesus, but he was sent out from God as an apostle, a messenger from God, one sent with authority, sent with purpose and mission, one sent from God to represent God to us. That's been the, the focus of the book of Hebrews to this point. But today, in Hebrews chapter, at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 14 explicitly, or specifically, uh, he is going to turn his attention to the second part of that statement that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And now in, we're, we're entering into a section of Hebrews that really is, it, it runs from like 4, 14 all the way through 10, 18. It's the largest section. And he's going to begin to focus on Jesus's priesthood or his, uh, his, him being a high priest, the great high priest, in fact. And for the sake of context today, we're going we're gonna to pick up in verses 12 and 13. The, these serve as kind of a transition from the verses we studied last week to the verses we're going to study this week. Um, but our point of focus is really going to be in 14, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. So I'm going to go ahead and pray because we're going to break into the middle of this. I'm going to go ahead and pray. We'll read. We'll look at what it says and then we will move, we'll just see what the Lord uh, has to do among us today. Father, this is your word. You've sent your son to make yourself known. You've recorded his life, his work, his identity, his purpose. You, you, you've seen fit to ensure that it was written down so that we could look at it, see it, study it, even today. And even though I can't look him in the eyes, I can know my Jesus. We can know your son, our Savior. So, so would you, Father, today, by your word, meet us, challenge us, 
Show us our need and show us the solution in our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So for the sake of context, pick, picking up in verse uh, 12 um, and 13, the word says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, as we read that, I can probably really spend uh, at least a couple of weeks on this, but, but for the sake of just not losing sight of what's happening here, these transitional verses build out of what has been being said. If you look back into the beginning of chapter 4 and all the warnings that we've heard to this point, there have been this, there, these warnings have had the don't do this because if you drift away, there's no other hope, there's no other opportunity. It, it's, it's focused on what we lose if we let go of or drift away from Jesus. And then we come to this place where in the these two verses where we see the word of God, whether it's his written word or the, the, the living word, Jesus Christ, the, the man who is the word, Jesus Christ, in either regard, they lay us bare before God. There's nothing hidden. Now, I might be the weird one here, but, but as I imagine this, I, I mean, thinking of, of this, trying to understand what these verses are saying, I, I have a tendency to want to, like, cover cover myself up and all the shameful stuff just try to cover up because there's a reality that God knows me and all the secret things that happen inside my mind that you don't know about, he knows, he sees, he hears, he understands, he's, he's well aware. All the stuff that happens in my heart, the devotions, the ways I want to give myself to life, all these, all these secret hidden things are laid bare. It's like standing in front of, a, in front of a, uh, uh, someone just, well, as, as cautiously as I can, just standing in front of someone bare naked. He sees it all. Every ounce of it. And in one sense, I think this is ca to, to cause us a, a great understanding and a sense of apprehension. Don't drift. Don't drift. Don't drift. Because if you do, the word will, it will, it will show it. It will reveal it. it, it you, you won't be able to pretend. You won't be able to perform. You won't be able to ignore your shamefulness. Don't drift. But in these verses, these transitional verses that are going to launch us into this next section, we're also met with need. There's this deep-seated need in every one of us, us e e even believers, even Christian people. There's a deep-seated need. Because no matter how well I do at not drifting from the Savior, no matter how well I listen to the word preached by him, proclaimed by him, no matter how well I listen to Jesus, Believe what he says and obey what he says, no matter how good I do at doing that. No matter how good you do at doing that. The word is always going to show us it's not perfect. It's not without fault. It's not without flaw. It's not without some failing. And it sets before us this deep-seated need. Not only should I be doing, not only am I responsible in every way to be doing all I can to follow him, to listen to him, to believe him, and to obey him. 
but how desperately I fall short of him. See, it shows me this need that not only do I, not, not only do I need God to send someone to me, not only do we need someone to send a representative to us so that we can know him, know about him, hear from him, behalf. That somebody stand in our place. Doing. Let's keep reading. Pick it up in verse 14. Since then. So you see, these are connected immediately to those verses. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is the same exhortation, the same warning, the same, the same command that we've been given repeatedly. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find uh, grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men for, uh, in, in relation to God, to offer sacrifices for sins, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wavered since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only one, uh, only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed to by him who said of him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence although he was a son he learned dis, uh, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek now these verses uh, that, that, that that follow after this after this rendition or this understanding that God's word lays us bare. These verses that follow provide the solution. They show us the answer to the deep need that's demonstrated in those previous verses. There's no reason to try to hide and cover up because it's impossible. We can't do it. We're laid bare before him. But there is every reason to hold fast to the confession that we have made because in it we find our greatest needs met. Because of our sin, we, we need God to send his messenger and we need God to give us a representative who will stand before him on our behalf. But also because of our sin, if not for him doing this, if not for him doing this, that is, that's the definition of hopelessness. Because of our sin, if, if we read the verses in 12 and 13 and, and imagine in any way, I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps. I could just be better at this. If we ever fool ourselves into thinking that, then we're undermining the priesthood of Christ. We're, we're actually diminishing the reason he was sent. Jesus is our great high priest. 
And there is, there is no greater high priest than Jesus who met us in our deep need to lead us into God's mercy and grace. That's how I would summarize this, this passage, 414 through 510. He is our great high priest. Jesus is. And he met us in our deep need <laughs> to, to lead us into God's mercy and grace. He met us in the depths of our need to take us to where we couldn't go on our own. This passage, it's not the first mention of Jesus' priesthood, but it is the first time that we're focusing on it. These verses open a whole new section, and as, as I mentioned a minute ago, it's going to go all the way through chapter 10, around verse 18. The, the author of Hebrews, it's not like he didn't care about the other components of Jesus' ministry, but he is focused on making certain that we understand that Jesus' work as a priest, the, the things that he's come to do are central and necessary for us, and they are the very core, the very foundation, the very source of our hope. And so we must, we must pay attention. We must think clearly about these things. We must understand them and ensure, strive not to drift away, but to endure in our faith the whole fast our confession, the, 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 the exhortation, the command, the expectation of this truth is the same as it has been all the way through. Now, to defend his argument that Jesus is our great high priest, he, he lays out in comparison and con contrasting Jesus against the Old Testament priesthood, the old covenant priests. And he does that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And, and actually, if you follow it through, you're going to see him speak about first about the old covenant priests. And he's going to list off a couple of uh, 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 traits or attributes of the old covenant priests. And then he's going to turn around and apply those same things and show us how Jesus is exactly that. But he's even greater. He's even better. He's even higher. And so, and so we're going to walk through it. We're not going to necessarily look at that. It's called a chiasm where there's this, this uh, two... Two ends, it's almost like a, an hourglass figure. So there's a truth exhibited at the top and then builds to a central truth and then it builds out again. We're, we're not going to necessarily follow that chiastic truth that can be seen in these verses. But we're going to see Jesus compared and shown how he's comparable to the Old Testament priests, but also how he's greater, how he's higher, how he's, how he's done what they couldn't do. And first... We see him saying that, that high priests are uh, appointed. He says that in verse 1 of chapter 5. Jesus, as the old high priest, Jesus is appointed as high priest. He, he's like every other priest in this, <clears throat> in this regard. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's like every other priest in this regard. He's like every other high priest in this regard. Jesus was appointed by God. It's not something he, he, he could have possibly aspired to it. He could have desired it, but he didn't take on that assignment. He didn't receive He didn't get into that assignment on his own. It was assigned to him. And we see this in 5.1. And we're, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. It's a, it's a position of appointment. It's not one that you step into. You can't apply for it and think that, oh, well, I deserve this and I'm going to get it, right? Like you can't work to earn it. It's something that is appointed. Every high priest, this is true of them. And, and what were they to do? They were appointed for a purpose. He tells us they were appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The gifts are probably things like the um, the grain offerings and the peace offerings, but then there was also the, the sacrifices for sin, and there was daily sacrifices, but there was also the Day of Atonement. And that's probably what is being focused on here is the Day of Atonement, that the high priest would go and sacrifice for the sins, his sins and the sins of the people. And that's the responsibility of the high priest. So 5.1, we see the appointment of the high priest. 5.4, no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God. So, so no human high priest ever stepped into that role except appointed by God. 
Jesus, same thing. He's appointed as high priest. We see this in 5.5 and in 5.10. In both of these places, it refers to us, it shows us that Jesus was appointed by God. Look at it in verse 5. <clears throat> and uh, let's see. And again, in this passage, he said, nope, sorry, wrong, wrong chapter. <laughs> Got to flip my page. <clears throat> now, if he were on earth, come on, Seth. I went too far. That's the problem. Like, there's not there. Here he is. He says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. As he says also in other places, you are a priest forever in the, uh, in the order of Melchizedek. He was appointed by him who said to him. God, God said these words to Christ. He appoints Christ as the high priest. In verse 10, he was given this designation by God. You can see it again in, in verse 10 at the very end of this passage. Uh, being designated by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is appointed as high priest by God, just like every other high priest. This is a comparable reality. Old covenant high priests were appointed. Jesus, as a high priest, appointed. Another comparable ideal or another comparable trait is that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. We see this is true of the old covenant priests and of Jesus in his priesthood. In 5.2, we come to this place where he tells us, he can deal, this is speaking of the old covenant priests, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So ignorant, they're ignorant of their sins, they're ignorant of the ways of God, they're, they're, they're wayward, they've, they've gone astray, they've drifted, if you will. There's this idea of, of not purposefully defying, like, I know you're God, I know this is what you've commanded, I know, I, and, and I want nothing to do with it, and standing in defiance and, and, and a lack of repentance. In, in fact, some have suggested that that the reason that he doesn't um, make sacrifices or demonstrate any sacrifice for defiance or purposeful, willful sin is because in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that would have been um, likened to apostasy in the New Testament. So a person coming to a place where I know Jesus died for my sin, I know that I have no hope apart from him, but I absolutely refuse to follow, listen, believe, think on him in any way. I reject him as my Savior. That, that, that's the idea, is that in some way there's this willful, defiant apostasy, this rejection that, that seemingly there is no sacrifice for. If you reject Jesus as your Savior, there is no other salvation, essentially. But Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. We see first the old covenant high priests were sympathetic. They were able to sympathize. They were able to understand and experience the, the, the sins of people because they had their own weaknesses. Now, we're going to recognize here in just a minute that that was a weakness of theirs, but they were able to, to uh, remain humble. They, were, they didn't become, I mean, they were able to endure a long time with a bunch of people who were, who were stiff-necked, as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament refers to them, who were constantly going astray. Uh, they were like sheep without a shepherd, it was often said, or they were, they were uh, wandering uh, all over the place. They, they each went their own direction, it says in Judges. They did as they saw fit. That these priests were able to endure in that way because they themselves understood fully because they had their own weakness. That's the, that was the intent, that these are to be humble men. Well, that's true of the old covenant priests, but it's also true of Jesus in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus faced and endured his own uh, weakness in his flesh. He, he dealt with the, the struggles and the difficulties, uh, the same temptations that, that we deal with. Even though he is God's son, he suffered. Now we're already going this, this is where we're going to begin to see a distinction. Because in verse 3 of chapter 5, we see that these priests, they, they were able to, to remain sympathetic because, well, they had their own weakness. But in verse 3 of chapter 5, it says, Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. But in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, we're able to see, well, Jesus suffered, Jesus endured, Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. He faced this same kind of stuff. He was crying out to God, and it's probably a picture of, this is probably a reference directly to the prayer in the garden where he cries out and, and seeks God to, to uh, if this cup can pass from me, then, then may it be so, right? Like that's probably a, a direct reference to that, but Jesus regularly prayed. We see him in the book of Luke most often going off to be alone to pray, to seek the Father. And then it says, although he was, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. But it, it doesn't explicitly say it in that moment, but he's already shown us in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so even though this, this old covenant reality, this old covenant priest was able to, to sympathize and, and remain connected and endure alongside uh, stiff-necked people and continue to do his service. This high priest was able to continue on. His own weakness was an even greater weakness because not only did he have to suffer with them and alongside them, he had to, he had to deal with his own sin. Jesus didn't. But like every other high priest that served on behalf of God, God's people, representing God's people before God, Jesus knew what it was to be tempted and what it was to endure suffering. And yet he did it sinlessly. So in these first two traits, we see this comparable nature, even though we're already getting a hint to see that Jesus is greater. We're going to deal with that more specifically in just a moment. So, so we, see the comp, we see the comparison. We see how they're similar. But he also proves his point to show Jesus as the greater high priest by showing us that Jesus is our divine high priest. Look at it in verse 14, where, where he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He's already developed this earlier in the book. In chapter 1, he's already laid out. It's not some new idea he's, he's presenting here. He's telling us this is God's own Son. The one who God says is his son. And he's going to say it again here in just a moment. But, but we see this divinity. We see this divine God nature being expressed. Since we have this high priest who is God's son, let us hold fast our confession. And you drop down into chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. And, and again, we, we, we see the, the author doing what he does over and over in referring to the Old Testament. But he says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He, he was appointed, but was appointed by him who said of him, you are my son. These are God's words of his son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The old, that's, that's Psalm 2-7, I think, is the exact reference in the Old Testament. It was, it, it was used previously in this book. It, originally, it spoke to uh, uh, David and Solomon, but, but, but the, the author understands that the Holy Spirit's intent was that this is fulfillment was Jesus being God's son. It's divine. He is our divine high 
priest. He is God's son. And then further, he goes on to say, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to go into Melchizedek deeply today. He is a high priest, or a priest that's mentioned in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter uh, 14. I believe we're going to read it in just a minute. But he, he is mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. Um, but, but there's this interesting reality that, that what we're seeing here in these two Old Testament quotes is both the divine nature, the godliness or the godness of Jesus. You are my son, today I've gotten you. And we're also seeing his humanity. Because how can he be in the order of any line of priests, even if it's Melchizedek, if he's not a human being? This divine priest, there's this this human and divine reality. He is truly God and he is truly man. He's a man and therefore can be appointed as the role of high priest from among men. That's the idea. that He's appointed from among us. He's shown to be greater than any of us. He's appointed as high priest among us. And he can sympathize with us, but Jesus is so much more than just a man. He's God in flesh. He is our divine high priest. And and, and so the the author shows us this is one of the attributes that make him greater, that make him show the distinct and and, um, wide contrast between who Jesus is as the high priest and the old covenant high priest. Jesus is greater. There's no greater high priest. The next thing he shows us to show us the greatness of Jesus' priesthood is that Jesus is our sinless priest. We've already touched on this in verse 15 of chapter 4. You can look back if you want to. Let us hold fast our confession. I'm sorry. Yes, sorry. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He never sinned. The high priests of the old covenant were able to sympathize but they had their own sin to deal with. In, in their weakness, their weakness led them to deeper and, and, and darker sin. They, they had their own issues. But Jesus never did. He endured all the same things we did, and he did it without sin. Now, this raises the question. I, I'm going to write about this and post it later this week on Realm and then on our Facebook page as well. This raises the question. It was asked to me uh, earlier this week, could Jesus have sinned? Now, I'm not going to be able to answer that succinctly. I'm not going to be able to deal with that fully, but I want you watching for it later this week. But I do want to, I, I just want to deal with it briefly here. That there, that there have been people on both sides of this argument that yes, Jesus could have sinned, and yes, Jesus couldn't have sinned, and these are good, godly Christian men, theologians that you would listen to, believe, trust. R.C. Sproul believes he could. Uh, I'm trying to think of one who, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. So, so good, godly men have disagreed about whether he could or couldn't. And so as I answer this this week for you and answer, seek to answer that question, probably you're not going to be satisfied with the answer, right? You're just going to be able to see the debate. But here's what I want to say to you in this moment as we talk about Jesus as our sinless high priest. Whether he could or couldn't isn't really the heart of the issue. The reality is he wouldn't. You get that? He wouldn't. We're so concerned with whether he could or couldn't, and we're forgetting all about the fact that Jesus is God, and he is sinless, and so he just won't sin. 
His desire is for the glory of God, the glory of his Father. His whole life was given to, to see him glorified. Everything about him in the flesh, everything he endured, every way he suffered, all the temptations that came, all he longed for, his deepest desire was the glory of God. And so whether he could or couldn't seems to me somewhat immaterial because he wouldn't. The other thing I would suggest in, 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 in this understanding of Jesus is our sinless priest is that even though he didn't sin he can still sympathize I've come across ideas that well Jesus doesn't really understand what it is because you know he didn't actually sin and I would say that's probably not true in in fact I would suggest that Jesus understands enduring temptation and, and undergoing suffering far greater than any of us do. I think the reality is it's not that he can't sympathize with us. The reality is we can't sympathize with him. Because as we endure hardship, as we endure testing, as we endure the difficulties this life throws at us, every one of us cave. Every one of us crumble under the weight, and Jesus never did. When he's tempted in every way that we are, He continues to endure. He continues to go on. He continues to to stay the straight and narrow path. Jesus did what none of us have ever done, and he walked perfectly all of his life. So whether he could or couldn't sin, that's not the issue. It's he wouldn't sin. And even though he didn't sin, he can still sympathize with us because he went farther in endurance than any of us ever have. So so think about this. You, you could talk to people, I don't, I've never done this, maybe you've done it, and you can, it, it, I don't know, what's the farthest person, farthest a person's ever run, right? Like, I, I can't imagine what it is to run a marathon. I'm sorry for you people who can. I mean, that to me doesn't make a bit of sense. I, I don't get it. It's hard for me to sympathize with that, right? But you understand what it is to run four miles. You understand what it is to run ten miles. Farthest I've ever run in my life at one time in one stretch is about six miles. I refuse to ever do it again unless someone's chasing me. <laughs> Probably even then I'm not the shape to do it, so it's not going to happen. But you can understand what it is to run six miles. Jesus can understand what it is to endure to the point of crumbling. What we can't understand is how Jesus continued to endure. <laughs> even though he didn't sin, he still sympathizes with us. And as a result of not sinning, He shows himself to be the sinless high priest. He never had to make a sacrifice for his own sin. The the next point that the author of Hebrews brings out that shows us the greatness of Jesus' priesthood is that he is our majestic high priest. The imagery all the way through this this book really is about the, the majestic nature of our Savior. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 8.1 and Hebrews 12.2. In chapter 1, quoting from Psalm 45, we're reminded that Jesus' throne is established forever. That's Hebrews 1.8. In, in this passage, we see this imagery in chapter 4, verse 14 of the or, or verse 16, drawing near to the throne of Grace, there's this imagery of the majestic nature and the majestic world that, the, that, the, that our Savior, that our high priest has led us into. In fact, even in speaking of Melchizedek, there's an imagery of the majestic nature of Jesus' priesthood. 
And again, we're, we're going to deal with this more deeply in chapter 7 when we get to chapter 7. But let me just mention quickly, Genesis 14, 18 is the verse that Melchizedek is mentioned, or one of the verses, and it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, he's a king, right? This, this king of Salem, literally peace, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek is a king priest. He's not just a priest. He's a king who is a priest. He is a priest who is a king. So it makes complete sense when you begin to understand the nature of Jesus' priesthood that it's a majestic priesthood. Jesus couldn't be simply in the line of Aaron because they were simply priests. Jesus has to be and is appointed into a, a priesthood that is kingly and majestic in nature. He is a king priest. So Jesus is appointed, he's sympathetic, he's divine, he's sinless, he's majestic. And finally, Jesus is our perfect high priest. And I know perfect and sinless seem like the same thing, but they're not. Now, we think of perf perfection as sinless. Like, we think of it in terms of, I never sin. But the reality is, is that being perfect in, in the text is really about being complete. It's about, it's about there's a starting point, a real starting point, and a real place of completion. And so that's the idea. Telios, it's, it's, it's not just uh, purity, it's complete. Like everything is done. Everything is complete. And verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5 give us this picture of completion. They, they direct us to this idea of Jesus' sonship again. But then they go further and they show us and they highlight that, that like every other human being, Jesus had to grow from infancy to maturity. Jesus had to start he, he, to take on flesh. He entered the world as an infant. He had to learn to crawl. He had to learn to walk. All the stages of development that you expect your children to go through. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to even to obey. And that's what these verses teach us. I appreciate Tom Schreiner's words here. He's one of the commentators that I'm studying from. <clears throat> he wrote, He learned how to obey in the anvil of human experience as he experienced life day by day. In particular, he learned obedience in his sufferings. When suffering strikes, human beings are inclined to do whatever it takes to avoid it, to find another path where there is joy and refreshment. Jesus, however, learned how to trust God and do his will in the midst of his suffering. His first aim was not his own pleasure and comfort, but the will of God. The point is that Jesus completed this work. When faced with a decision, just like tomorrow morning, when you wake up, you're going to be faced with a decision. When you get out of bed, your, your decision is going to be, am I going to live to the glory of God today or am I going to live for myself? And you're faced with a decision as you go to work. Am I going to work simply to, to, to uh, am I going to work as an act of worship to, to, to demonstrate and to display the glory of my God or am I going to make my life easy and to find comfort and to build my own kingdom? We're faced with decisions every time we sit down in front of the computer and no one else is looking. We're faced with decisions every time we climb in our car about how we're going to interact with the people around us. Some of us are better at that than others. We're faced with decisions. Every decision we make, there's an opportunity to make the decision. And Jesus learned obedience. He didn't just learn it in the sense of he never knew how to do it. He experienced obedience. He demonstrated obedience. He made the right choice at every turn. He chose at every moment to honor his Father. And when he hung on the cross and he said the words, It is finished. He's not just simply speaking of the atoning work that he came to perform. He absolutely is, but also the work that demonstrate him demonstrates and proves he is the great high priest is complete because facing the greatest test of all, 
dying in our place for our sin, fa- facing the greatest amount of physical suffering he had endured yet, and, and, and however it works out, the, 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 um, the, the way in which he and his father, I, again, it's, it's beyond me to even describe this, but the way in which he and his father, in some way, he becomes sin. And, and he and his father's fellowship is in some way challenged. A suffering he had never known. He endured to the very end, to the moment that he breathed his last and he hung his head and he died. It is finished. Jesus is our perfect. He's perfected. He is complete in every way. He is our perfect high priest. There is no greater high priest than Jesus who met us in our deep need to lead us into God's mercy and peace, or mercy and grace. It's this unique qualifications, it's this unique nature of Jesus' priesthood that enables him to do what no other high priest could have done. It's precisely because he did what no other high priest could do that, that he can do what no other high priest could and lead us into the, to, to the mercy and grace of God. Again, back up at the top of this passage in John or Hebrews 4.16, we see him providing us mercy. Jesus provides us access to God's mercy. Think back to all those verses we read at the very beginning, verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 4. God's word lays you bare. Nothing to hide. All the ways that you pretended for the world around you that you're really a good person. He knows the truth. You deserve his wrath. You deserve condemnation and judgment. And yet... In Christ, we find his mercy. This has already been expressed in this letter. Hebrews 2, 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So he becomes like us. He's made to be like us in a way that he has to learn like us. He didn't get put into the world, to the world as an adult. He's born as a baby so that he could live. So that he could learn obedience through suffering. So that he could, so that he could face the same temptations and struggles that we face. <clears throat> so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the world. The beauty of what God has done for us is this. That God satisfies his justice for our sin in Jesus. Jesus makes a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, a satisfying sacrifice. Jesus makes that on our behalf. He is our high priest so that we can receive God's mercy. So now as you stand before him and you, and you read the word or, or you consider yourself before God and his word begins to illuminate all the failures, all the flaws, all the sin, his judgment, his justice is met in the death and sacrifice of Christ and his mercy is given to people like you and like me. And it's only through Jesus. Jesus secures our entry into God's grace. So not only is there mercy for our sins that we've committed, but there is grace. As our lives are laid bare in in light of the Scripture, we're not only shown how we have sinned and how that sin resides in us even currently, but we're shown our weakness and inability to actually do anything but sin apart from Him. Why is it that every time we face temptation that we automatically assume, well, I'm just going to try and stay away from temptation because if I can stay away from temptation, I won't sin. How are you doing on staying away from temptation? 
Every decision we face is an opportunity to face temptation. It is a temptation. It is a test about who we really love, about what we really believe. If you don't understand what I'm saying, go back. I, I wrote it and I posted it this week on our Facebook page and then on Realm, and, and I described that just a little bit. Temptation is not only an evil thing enticing us to do evil. Temptation, the word, is a test. It's a test. And, and sometimes noble things are, are, are tests. Or what are you really devoted to? Things that are morally neutral are, are, are set before us. Do you love the Father? Do you love God in heaven? Or do you love the thing on earth? And and our flesh, this flesh we're called to put off, this we're called to be done with. Apart from Jesus Christ, all we've got is failing. But because of Jesus Christ, we not only get the transforming grace, but we get the empowering grace that enables us to live the life we've been called to live. The transforming grace in Jesus Christ, Ephesians describes it as a, as a, as a resurrection a, a from death to life. You were dead in your trespasses, Ephesians 2.1 tells us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, verse 4 tells us, but God has made you alive and seated you in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved, it tells us. God's grace gives us a whole new identity, a whole new union, a whole new position in His created order. He has seated us in the heavenlies with His Son, our Savior, our great high priest. But God's grace also empowers us. We see it in, again in, in, displayed in this book, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. There's an empowering, there's a help, there's, a, there's an ability that's given to us by God's grace. Not simply to recognize our sin and, and just say, oh, well, there's an answer for my sin. But when we're faced with those temptations, when we're faced with those testings, there is a grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ that doesn't, doesn't, it, it doesn't define temptation as automatic failure. But every time we face temptation, we are by Jesus Christ, by the power given to us in him, we are able to say yes to the right thing. Temptation is no longer, it's no longer a foregone conclusion to sin, but now an opportunity to worship. So it's not about avoiding temptation. It's about being given and living in the grace of God that now empowers us to live according to his commands. To, to, to live in a way, in such, in such a way that we actually hold fast to the confession because Jesus helps us do it. So Jesus, he gives us access, provides us access to God's mercy. Jesus secures us our entry to God's grace. And Jesus is our, so, is our source for eternal salvation. Look at the very end of this passage, chapter 5, verse 9. He comes and he says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We endure in salvation because the salvation that Jesus has provided us is eternal. It's permanent. It never ends. No other priest in any other covenant could do that work. They're constantly offering sacrifices, never getting done offering sacrifices. Jesus does his work, and it is finished. He has brought it to completion, and he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he promises this eternal salvation, this eternal rest. It is finished. And in him, it will always be finished.
Suffering, the difficulties we face in this world, it's temporary. The salvation in the world to come is forever. So hold fast. It's the same encouragement, the same exhortation. Hold fast this confession. Endure in your faith. Listen to, hear, believe, and trust, and obey Jesus. Let's pray.